through Second Peter tonight. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together, can we? And we're going to talk about Peter scouring the scoffers. And, uh, you know, when you get into 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Jude, some of these letters that are deeper into the New Testament, I, it's, it's very strong stuff, very serious stuff, very somber stuff. It's kind of, it's get right with God stuff. And we're going to be looking tonight at something that will sure make you want to get right with God if you're not. And if you are right with God, it will make you thankful that you are. As we get into this, think of, you know, old Peter, the crusty old fisherman. Jesus touched, said, follow me, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. But he didn't mention, I'm going to make you a brilliant, profound writer as well. Well, let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the word of God tonight. And we pray that you will speak to us out of your word. Lord, we need to understand it. We need our faith built by it and our lives built on that foundation. Thank you, Lord, that it's your word. Now, will you breathe a prayer tonight, church, and say, speak to me, Jesus. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I'm so thankful for the growing number of people that are coming on Wednesday nights because it's a very healthy sign that we have a church that is hungry for the Word of God, that you would come here after you worked all day, you felt tired, you could have gone home and sat in the easy chair and flipped on that <laughs> idiot box and scanned the channels and found absolutely nothing. And you know what? It's always better to get the Word because there's not much on that television, is there? But you, but you made the time, you traveled here, and that says to me, I'm hungry for the Word of God, and that's a very, very good sign of spiritual health. Now, remember last time we talked about the sinister sin of Balaam. You remember that? We saw how his love for money contributed to his downfall. And the love of money can do it. As long as you, you don't love the money, but you just use the money, you're all right. But when you love it, it can get you in trouble, and it sure got Balaam in trouble. Now, we also looked at the doctrine of Balaam, which in a nutshell was, if you can't beat them, seduce them. What was the doctrine of Balaam? Balaam counseled King Balak, who was a, an enemy tribe, an enemy people, enemy of Israel, and said to him, you can't defeat them with the army, but what you can do is send your women in among them, seduce the men, and bring them into idolatry and immorality. And it worked. And the Bible shows us how they were brought into judgment because of it. So that was last week. If you missed it, grab that, that uh, CD. It was really good. Now this time in Second Peter 3, we're going into the third chapter. We're going to look at a subject near and dear to Peter's heart. And that's the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Always talked about it. Peter always harped on this as did Paul and the others. Now, Peter was particularly concerned because the truth of the Lord's return was being denied. So first, here's what he does. He exposes the scoffer because there were a group of people going into the church, eating with them, attending their love feasts, but they were undermining and destroying the people's belief in the return of Christ. They were undermining sound doctrine. 
And so he exposes the scoffer, and then he exhorts the saints. Now here's what he said in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which, he's talking about 1 Peter and 2 Peter, in both of them, in which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. I'm going to remind you again of what I reminded you in my first letter. Peter's referring back to his first letter. He's reminding them of what they've already heard from him and the other apostles. Not just Peter, but Peter, Paul, and the others were all in unity on the basic sound doctrine of the faith. They all agreed. But the people, as do we, were inclined to forget even the basics. Amen? We do, don't we? Now, his readers had been well and truly grounded in the truth by the Apostle Paul. Most of Paul's great epistles had already been written and were in circulation. They didn't have the Bible you've got in your hand. They had the Old Testament, but, but the New Testament was just being written. So when Peter writes this second letter, here's what you might or might not have had access to if you had been a Christian in those days. Uh, most of Paul's epistles were written and they were in circulation, and some of the Christians had read them and some had not. Luke's gospel and Mark's gospel were probably already in circulation as well. And the book of Acts and the epistle of James. These were circulating around. They did not have UPS. They did not have a post office. They had carriers. They had carriers who brought them from church to church. And the leaders would stand up in front of the people, the elders, and read just verbatim, what Paul or Peter or James had written, or John. So when one of the letters got to your town, boy, it was, a, it was hot news. Be sure you gather with us this week because we're going to read a new letter from Peter, straight from the man. And you know, it was exciting. Most Christians have five Bibles in their house, can't find most of them. The other one's got dust all over it. Let me tell you something. It wasn't true in those days. They long, they salivated for these letters. Now next, Peter's point is made. Here's what he's telling them, that you might be mindful. Think about the words that are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of Jesus. Now there's Peter putting himself right next to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the holy prophets of old, and he said, you need to be mindful of what they wrote and what we have been writing to you. What they wrote is inspired, and he's not afraid to say, what I'm writing is inspired. False teachers were on the prowl. Peter's solution was to refer his readers back to the old and the parts of the New Testament that were in circulation at that time. He believed rightly that the doctrines of devils Warned of by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1 that people would depart from the faith and give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines taught by demon spirits. I don't think a lot of people realize that the devil teaches. He just teaches wrong. He, he always lies in what he teaches, but he's a teacher, and he raises up human beings who will teach his message. And when they do, sometimes it's flesh talking, and sometimes 
It's a demon spirit talking right through them. He says, I want you to be careful of these doctrines of demons, and I want you to know that they will not be able to take root, the doctrine, in a soul that is well grounded in the Word of God. This is why I teach you the Bible. This is why I don't just get up here with a pet verse and repeat it over and over and over again ad nauseum. I teach you the whole Word of God. I take you through whole books because I know that as you become literate in the Bible, you will not be deceived. And see, I'm going to answer for how I teach in this church. Those of you that are under our ministry, I will answer for that. I'll answer for how I taught you and what I taught you. And so I'm not up here to tell you what I think about stuff or give you fleshly opinions about things. I'm here to exegete, to open up, to break open the bread of the Word of God. I want you to know it. I want you to understand 1 Peter, 2 Peter. I want you to understand the letters in the book of Revelation. I want you to understand the Old Testament and the New. I wish I had every night, seven days a week, 365 days a year to teach you. It's why I want a school here someday. Really do. Matter of fact, it's in my heart. If God gives me health in many years, it'll be here. Because there's way too much I've got to say and too little time to say it. So here, when you know the Word of God, modern cults are full of people brought up in Orthodox and fundamental churches that were either not taught sound doctrine or didn't pay attention to it, and they fell prey to the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, some other cultic religion or faith or doctrine. The false teachers are everywhere. Just last week, a new book came out from one of the top leaders in the so-called emergent church. And the emergent church has emerged, in my opinion, into heresy. This teacher I'm not going to tell you his name because I don't want you to go get the book. And I don't want anybody listening by radio to go get it because I don't want him getting any more money than he's already getting. But he's number four on Amazon. So here's the sad thing. I skinned through it. And what he's teaching is this. Everybody is saved. Everybody is saved. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, it saved the whole world. No matter what you believe, whether or not you repent, it saved you. The blood covered you. You were redeemed. So... Charles Manson is saved, and Idi Amin was saved, and everybody since Christ was saved, and no one is going to stay in hell. The Greek that he goes into, he tries his hand at Greek, but it's awful. A first-year Greek student could rip apart his exegesis of Greek. But here's the sad thing. It's number four on Amazon. That means all kinds of people who are in this category right here not well taught, don't really know sound doctrine, are going to read that book and say, oh, I don't need to repent. I'm saved. I don't need to repent. He's very persuasive. He's very charismatic. They usually are. He's very convincing. He's very likable. They usually are. But he's very wrong. But there it goes covering the country. Just a great example.
Hmm? Oh, yeah. He said, Jesus only mentioned hell 12 times. Hey, once is enough for me. Yeah, he only mentioned it 12 times, so it can't be re really real. But it's just a great example. And, and really, you don't have to look long. As a matter of fact, it's so, you know, I'm used to it. I've seen it happen a million times, but I wrote about it in, um, for the bulletin this week in the TTP, the To the Point, um, because it's just a great example of what we've been talking about, that there's false teachers out there appealing, persuasive, eloquent, uh, charismatic, attractive, likable but they're teaching false doctrine. But you know what? You won't be tripped up by it. You know why? Because you've been taught. But a lot of people will. Now, biblically literate believers are not trapped by the snares of the devil you, and false teachers. You can't deceive a well-taught Christian into Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or anything because you know too well. You know too much. Now next come the scoffers. First, their ridicule is exposed. Peter says, knowing this first, scoffers are going to show up in the last days. Peter now turns his gaze to the end times. He sees the coming of a generation of scoffers. Scoffers can also be rendered mockers. They ridicule, they malign, they poke fun at Christ and Christians. Scoffers. Their rottenness is exposed by Peter. As is always the case, they are, according to Peter, quote, walking according to their own lust. They're not spirit of God driven, they're lust driven. These mockers are motivated by their own carnal desires. They're always after something that is fleshly, the false teachers. They're lust driven, they're sensual, and they don't have the spirit of God. This is what Peter says, by the spirit, as he's moved by the Holy Ghost. And not just their rottenness is exposed, but their reasoning is exposed. Here's how they reason. Here's what they say. Where's the promise of His coming? Because since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Come on. It's the same old, same old. Things are going on like they always have. Don't give me this Jesus is coming back stuff. The scoffers have arrived. They're now among us and they're growing. I'll give you an example. In 1982, the June issue of Atlantic Monthly, this is 82, devoted its cover and leading article to ridiculing those who believe in the second coming of Christ, the Atlantic Monthly. The article was written by William Martin and was titled, Waiting for the End, sarcastically. The cover depicted a, a fussy little man dressed in a poorly tailored blue suit with a Bible tucked under his arm, so he's a Bible thumper impatiently pointing to his watch. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? But the scoffers have grown much more brazen since 1982. I could spend the rest of tonight giving you examples of modern-day scoffers. You don't have to look far to find them. Failed comedian and radical leftist liberal Bill Maher produced a mo movie called Religulous, or relig yeah, Religulous, two words, ridiculous, religious, poking fun at anybody that believes in God, in which he mocks and ridicules those who believe in the second coming of Christ. I call him failed comedian because 
he's got to say horrible things to get a listening audience anymore. But he ridicules those in religulous, ridicules them who believe in the second coming of Christ, makes fun of them, mocks them, calls them backwoods and ignorant. Very predictably, usually around Easter, get ready, you'll see it. Major national magazines like Time and Newsweek always run front cover articles questioning the return of Christ and looking askance at those who believe it. Time and Newsweek and others. Every year, it's totally predictable. Uh, by the way, that book I was just telling you about by the emergent church guy, what time of year is it? It's Easter. Out comes the book. Mockers believe that they have given God plenty of time to fulfill His promise to return and thus have now concluded that His time is up. If He hadn't come by now, they say, He simply is not coming. Wake up. Come down to reality. Earth to church. Phone home. Get real. Well, we have an answer for that. Their unbelief, says Peter, stems from not just ignorance, but willful, willful, chosen ignorance. For this they willfully forget. Look what Peter says. This they willfully forget. That by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. He's referring back to the creation of the world. He said when God separated land from sea, gave the sea its parameters across which it could not travel. You had land, you had sea. God stopped them, divided them. The earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished. Now he's going back to the antediluvians, the people that lived in Noah's day. What happened to them? They perished being flooded with water. Now keep in mind, he says, these scoffers choose, they willfully, they willfully choose to be ignorant on facts of history like this one. That the earth that then existed and everything and everybody in it perished, flooded with water. He's talking about the great flood and Noah's ark. Peter returns to the story of Noah's flood again and again in his writings. His point is that the world was well-warned, and as it was well-warned then, it is well-warned now. Enoch had hinted at God's approaching judgment by the name he gave to his son, Methuselah, which means when he dies, it, meaning the judgment, the flood, it shall come. When my son dies, the judgment shall come. What a scary name. Don't die, Methuselah. Hey, let's keep you healthy. When he dies, it shall come. Methuselah lived the longest of any man in history, 969 years. He almost made it to a millennia. And I told you the last time we went over this that that was the mercy and the grace of God. He kept that man alive because he knew when he dies, it shall come. Hell will break loose on this earth. Judgment will fall. 
He lived 969 years, and Enoch's prophecy seemed to slumber, but it did not die. Judgment fell. Then came Noah. At God's command, he began to build an ark, and a time was set on God's calendar. 120 years. You read about it in Genesis 6, verse 3. 120 years. During this time, the ark was built. And what happened during the building of the ark? Noah preached preached. He was a preacher of righteousness, according to Peter. He preached to a rebellious, heedless world. No one, not one convert. After centuries of preaching, that would take the air out of me. But he preached faithfully the Word of God. Jesus himself pointed to the ignorance of the antediluvians, not just the ignorance, but the, the willful ignorance. In Matthew 24, 38, Jesus talked about they'll be marrying and giving in marriage just like they were in Noah's day and Lot's day, doing business as usual, just going through life, going through the motions. And Jesus' inference is that they were willfully, brazenly ignorant by choice. They choose to, chose to ignore the warning of Enoch, the warning of Methuselah, the warning of the ark, the warning of Noah. The ark was a sign of judgment soon to come. The more it got built, what was God saying to them every day? Judgment's coming. You know that Noah told them why he was building it. Part of his message was show and tell. This boat is being built for you to be saved from judgment. So every day they looked at it. And every day they willfully ignored it. The death of Methuselah was a sign the preaching of Noah was a sign. Still, they knew not. They were willingly ignorant. Now the ages rolled by. The dry land still raised its head above the sea. All things continued as they were. Then with no further warning, the last day dawned. And that's how it's going to be, church. Life will seem to go on as usual, buying and selling, marrying, giving in marriage, having kids, raising families, going to school, spending money, buying homes, storing up your 401k, retiring with your gold watch, hitting the golf course for a few years. Life as usual, people born, people die, people going through the motions. It'll look just like that. With rampant sin, rampant immorality, rampant godlessness, rampant demonism. And then with no warning at all, maybe on a bright sky blue day, the last day will dawn. Jesus said it's going to be just like that. Noah and his family were in the ark where they had been for seven days. God said, get in there, go on, get, the, get in there. All the animals had come, so they got in. And do you know that God waited still with Noah and his family in there, waited still for seven more days? He gave the world one more week to get right. That was the closing seconds of God's great patience. The antediluvians were given one week to realize that Noah and his family, along with two of every species of God's creation, had gone in. They were there. The building of the ark was over. God gave them a week to realize it. The ark door remained open until the eighth day. 
The Holy Spirit records, read it with me, Then the Lord closed the door behind them. Now hear me, church. The day is going to come when God closes the door. God didn't ask Noah to do it. His conscience couldn't have taken that he locked all those people out. God closed the door. The Holy Ghost tells us the Lord closed the door. There is a time when God's patience runs out. Now, the Holy Ghost tells us, in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights all of a sudden. And you know what they were going through there on earth. You know what those people that had listened to him for 120 years were thinking. Or probably you don't. But try to imagine it. He was right. I believe they were banging on that ark. But it was made with pitch, which is a soundproof uh, uh, substance, soundproofing substance. They were banging on that thing, but he could not hear them. You had giraffes and elephants and lions and bears and tigers making noise and roaring and growling and walking and birds flying. He couldn't hear it. The Holy Spirit vividly recounts the rest of the story. Listen to this. For 40 days, the floodwaters grew deeper, covering the ground, lifting the boat high above the earth. As the waters rose higher and higher above the ground, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered even the highest mountains on the earth. Rising more than 22 feet above the highest peaks, it went 22 feet higher than Everest. It covered the earth. All the living things on earth died. I hate this. I hate judgment. You know what? God hates judgment. It says mercy rejoices over judgment. God doesn't want to judge. That's why he's so long-suffering. But all the living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground. And all of the people who willfully ignored the word of warning. Everything that breathed, verse 22 says, everything that breathed and lived on dry land died. God wiped out every living thing on the earth, people, livestock, small animals that scurry along the ground, the birds of the sky, all were destroyed. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. And I tell you before God today, the only people who will survive God's judgment are those that are in the ark named Jesus. Because Jesus said, it'll be like the days of Noah. So we just take him at his word. And the floodwaters covered the earth for 150 days, five months. Peter in his epistle says that people are willingly ignorant of this fact. They don't want to know about it. The story of Noah's ark was ridiculed then as it is today. But the flood really happened. It really did. It happened. The people of Noah's day scoffed, just as they do in our day, saying, hey, where's the promise of his coming? Come on, that boat's not going to float. Are you crazy? For since the fathers fell asleep, they say, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. 
But you know, the people of our day, they've got two things they can scoff at. Noah's Ark and the promised return of Christ, and they scoff at both. Either way, they expose their blindness, they expose their ignorance, their unbelief, and their rebellion against God. And believe me, trust me, most of them, it's a willful ignorance. Don't talk to me about it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want your proof. Next, Peter predicts God's next judgment will be, when it comes, it's not going to be by water, but it's going to be by fire. Now watch what he says. Chapter 3, verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto or for fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now note the phrase, by the same word. He says, by the same word. The same word, that phrase, the same word of God that kept the seas in check until the flood came, now holds the fire in check. Same word. What, what held the seas back in Noah's day? The word of God. What holds the atoms together in the chairs you're sitting in? The Bible tells in the book of Colossians that by the word of Christ, everything is held together. The atomic structure of all things held together by the Word of Christ. He could speak, and this world would fly into chaos and nothingness in the bat of an eye. The atomic structures, the molecules, are being held in check. The same Word of God. The Lord promised Noah there would never be another universal flood, and there wasn't and there won't be. But the next universal judgment is going to be by fire. The doom that overtook Sodom and Gomorrah reminds us God's fully able to ignite this globe. There wasn't atomic weaponry in Sodom's day. It says, if you read your Bible carefully, that fire fell down from heaven, from God. Now, when I say this, again, I certainly get no pleasure out of this. As a matter of fact, it grieves you when you read it and really consider, uh, just say, okay, I'm going to take this for what it says. It's very, very sobering. And, and God does not like judgment. But He has to judge sin. He has to judge sin because of the holiness of His nature. We now know that every atom carries a furnace of doom within its own tiny heart every single atom. Split the atom, we know what happens. Peter says the universe is kept in store against the coming judgment. The phrase kept in store means to be treasured up or set aside, set aside for a purpose. You take your china and you store it, you set it aside and you wait for the right occasion. It says that the whole universe and the fire that could be released upon it is being set aside by God, treasured up, kept in place until His time. The universe is being carefully kept for the day of God's choosing because the entire creation has been stained and sullied by sin. God intends to clean things up by fire and reserves to Himself the time, the scope, and the means for doing so. All pornography is going to be burned up all sin is going to be burned up. Everything this, this, this 
the, the, this sinful world, the, the stain and the rot of transgression, everything that it has touched, it's all going to be burned up. And God's going to do it. According to Revelations 20.11, this day of judgment Peter's talking about has already been noted on God's calendar. The great white throne judgment. The judgment of fire, the, everything being burned up, will coincide with the great white throne judgment. Now next, Peter reminds us of something very important about God. But beloved, he says, read this with me, everybody. Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So here's these scoffers going, come on, come on. Uh, so much time has passed. He's never going to come. Wake up. Come on, go have some fun. No. According to this passage, Jesus has only been gone two days. In God's eyes, as human beings, here's the problem. We live in three tenses. Past tense, present tense, future tense. Because we're locked in time. We must answer to time because we are in time and space. So we got past tense, present tense, future. I can look back and remember. I can look forward and expect. And I can live for the fleeting moment. But I'm locked in time. We can only live life one moment at a time. We're living a moment right now. Isn't it a great moment? I love it. We can anticipate the future, and we can and, and remember the past, but we're locked into time, a moment at a time, and that's all that we can do. We are creatures of time. But guess what? God isn't. God gathers all of time. Now stretch your brains with me a minute. God gathers all of time, past and future, into an eternal present tense. He is the I am. That's why when Jesus uh, said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said before Abraham was, I am. You know what he was saying? They were so profound. He was saying, I as the Son of God live in a permanent present tense. When Abraham was, I am. When the world was created, I am. I am now, and I am later. I live in eternity. God lives above time. He inhabits eternity. Isaiah 57. He inhabits eternity. He's not subject to time. He doesn't decay. He doesn't wear down. He doesn't erode. He can experience a thousand years as though it were a single day. God can summon all of time in front of him, past, present, and future, a moment at a time, or all the moments at once. He can do it right then. You think of your life 20 years from now. You know what? He's already there. And you go back when you were born. Guess what? He's there too. Where are you going to be 50 years from now? Well, probably with him, but you know what? He's already there. See, before you leave, he's already arrived. It's a mind bender, but this is God. This is why God says in Isaiah, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I declare the end from the beginning. I declare the end before the beginning begins. Because I'm already at the end. Because I live in a permanent present tense. And from ancient times, God says, things that are not yet done. I tell you what's going to happen before they're even done. My counsel is going to stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So God says there's going to be a Russia before there's a Russia. 
God says there's going to be a return to Israel before they've even left in the first place. God gives the end before the beginning begins. He's already at all of your arrivals. Some of you started college this year. You're thinking of four years from now, you're going to walk across that stage. He's already there as you walk across the stage. Before a thing begins, God already sees the end of it. Before something starts, God sees the finish line. So Peter is reminding us, God's not locked into our small measure of time. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will. Nobody says to him, what do you think you're doing? He's not bound to a time period we consider too long. Oh, come on, he's not coming back. It's been 2,000 years. God says, no, 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 two days. Well, it's taking too long, not in, not in my timetable. You're just thinking that I'm taking too long because you're locked in time and you're impatient and you're made of flesh and one day you're going to be dust again. But I'm God. And I know exactly when I'm going to turn to Jesus and say, go get your bride. Peter assures us he's not slack. He's not late. His word is not false. God's long-suffering and patience are because he's not willing that anybody would perish. Why does he seem to be taking so long? He's not willing that anybody would perish. So if everybody is saved, why is Peter talking about them perishing? The only hope for the salvation of any soul rests in the patience, the long-suffering, and the self-control of God. Do you know how patient he was with you? Do you know how many times he could have vaporized you and me and been totally justified? Don't look at me so holy. Do you know how many times God said, I'm going to be patient? Do you know he's doing it right now? I'm going to be patient. Oh, they slipped up again, but I'm going to be patient. See, I've already decreed they're going to look like my son, talk like my son. They're going to think like my son. So I'm going to be patient. Now watch this. The fact that God allows outrages to continue must surely mean that he sees ahead for many a future of inconceivable horror. Or why would he be so patient? So Peter explains the seeming delay in Christ's return in terms of the pity and the patience of God. God's heart reaches out to all men. And so he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. A glacier moves steadily, but so slowly, it's almost imperceptible. You would think it's not moving at all. It might take the glacier 2,000 years to get from here to there, but it does get there in the end. So God's judgment may seem to move slowly, almost imperceptibly, but less, listen, move, it does, it will come. The day will dawn. And he will come back, just like in the days of Noah, and he will not tarry. Can we stand together? <clears throat> Next week, don't miss it, the day of the Lord, and then right after that, we slip into Jude. And we're going to take about three weeks in Jude. Jude and Second Peter are like brother and sister. Don't miss it. But how many of you are uh, getting something out of these series in these letters? Amen? <laughs> Isn't it good? 
Let's thank God for his mercy. Lord, we thank you. You are exceedingly patient with us. How many times, Lord, you could have said, that's it, but you didn't. And you were long-suffering and patient. And Lord, you're being patient, long-suffering, full of self-control with that world out there right now, blaspheming your name. We know you're waiting because your eye is on the next one to repent. Lord, we pray that you will help our church to rise to the occasion. Throw that gospel net across the earth. This community, this city, this country. And bring as many into the ark as we possibly can. We pray that you will continue to have mercy and raise up, Lord, great gospel-preaching churches, great gospel-preaching pastors, evangelists, apostles, prophets. And, Lord, that you will ignite your people to go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. We thank you for the ark of the new covenant Jesus Christ. Amen. You Let's worship him. Lift it up to him, everybody.